Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Happy New Year, everyone. We are glad to be back with you after taking a couple of weeks off to rest and re-energize after another great year. Jim, how was your break? Filled with grandchildren, so you can say good break, but not restful. <laughs> yes, I having four little ones of my own, I completely understand that sentiment. They invaded. They invaded. <laughs> yes, but such a fun time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we jump into today's conversation, I just want to take a moment to address any new listeners that we have today. So if this is your first time joining us, we are so glad to have your listening ear. Each week, I, and I'm Alexis, by the way, I'm joined by Dr. James Emery White, who I affectionately um, call Jim. And Jim is the the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's also where I work. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also the author of more than 20 books, a former seminary president, and I would say one of the leading voices in the realm of Christianity and culture. And so in each conversation, we choose a trending or important cultural issue, we unpack it, and we unpack the heart of it, and then we discuss how the Christian faith intersects that issue. Now, as this is our kickoff episode for 2024, we thought that instead of tackling one sole issue, we'd instead give an overview of what will most likely dominate this year's headlines, or if not headlines, your communities, your workplaces, family life, churches, and so on. So let's dive in. Now, I was just reading a few headlines from the past couple of weeks, and certainly what dominated those headlines was the political turmoil that's currently plaguing our country, not to mention the predictions of an increasingly polarizing landscape in the seedbed of this year's election. So what do you foresee, Jim, in the realm of politics for 2024? Yeah, you can't look out ahead into 24 and not note this huge, you know, stone in the river that's coming, uh, the upcoming presidential election, which in the United States, for our other listeners, I'm sure, just in case you don't know, happens only every four years here in the United States, uh, particularly in light of the turmoil that surrounded 2020. Uh, And that at the time of our conversation, the same two candidates are going to be on the ballot. Nothing really has changed much. The last presidential election, uh, we had enormous division culturally. Uh, There were uh, many, many conspiracy theories and even an attempted insurrection. Uh, The rhetoric is just as hot now, if not hotter uh, than it was then. Many feel democracy itself, and this is from more than one vantage point, but democracy itself is under fire. What I unfortunately foresee on the political front for 2024 is more of the same that we have experienced since at least 2020 in the run up to 2020. That means deep divisions and distrust and turmoil and a lack of civility. And for many people, palpable fear. And I do think that fear is, is, is a big word. People on either side fear what will happen if the other side wins. I recall reading an article in the Washington Post that was leading up to the 2020 election. The, a political commentator was quoted as, as saying that he had never seen anything 
quite like it. He said, even the most balanced mainstream people are talking about this election in language that is more caffeinated and cataclysmic than anything he had ever heard. And I remember he went on to say that if you're a believer in climate change, uh, reelecting Trump is literally the end of the world. If taxes are your issue, then you think a Biden victory will bankrupt you. If your top concern is health care, you think a Biden loss will kill you. Uh, the worry on the right is that a Democratic win would plunge the nation into catastrophic socialism. And the fear on the left is that a Trump victory would produce a turn toward totalitarianism. Both sides feel that if the other side wins, we're in for it. I don't think that's changed. If anything, there's just been more stuff piled on to what people fear will happen, depending upon who might win. And I think the division and the fear is probably greater now than it was then. And fear um, tends to lead to radical and irrational behavior. Uh, many would really like there to be uh, two less polarizing candidates on the ballot, but that does not seem at the time that we're recording this that that is going to be the case. So we're headed for a replay politically of 2020, and that means a high likelihood for a replay culturally of 2020, which makes a lot of people want to go throw up in a corner, uh, particularly as there have been few signs of tensions and divides lessening. I would encourage people who are interested in this, just in general, just how a Christian engages politics and a Christian engages government in a nonpartisan way, but just kind of looking at it biblically and theologically to listen to our podcasts on that, which we'll put in the show notes. But yeah, that's coming. Mm. Well, unfortunately, something that seems to go hand in hand with politics is, as you mentioned, just a spirit of divisiveness. And we had a conversation Gosh, I don't know when it was exactly. So we'll link it in the show notes as well. But about just this pervasive trend that you've been noticing of anger and meanness that's equally felt, I would say, both inside the church and outside the church. Um, with the presidential election looming, I doubt we're going to see any reprieve from that anytime soon, at least within politics. But what about outside of politics? Yeah, I think somebody who's doing some of the best thinking and, and reflection and research on this right now is a guy named David Brooks. Uh, he wrote, I think, an important article in The Atlantic that was simply titled How America Got Mean. Uh, his conclusion was both insightful and deeply disturbing. No one denies that we have become a very mean-spirited culture and that that, has, that coarseness has increased in recent years. We've become increasingly rude and cruel and abusive and violent, uh, whether it's toward a waiter at a restaurant, nurses at a hospital, teachers at school, road rage incidents on the interstate. Coupled with this is our increasing lack of compassion and empathy for others. There's a lot of ways you can look at that, but just very quickly, I mean, in 2000, two thirds of Americans gave to charity in 2018, fewer than half did. Our hearts just don't beat for that anymore like it did. As Brooks notes, there are a lot of reasons offered for this. For example, there's, there's a technology story or explanation. You know, social media is driving us all crazy. There is a sociological explanation or story uh, that we stopped participating in community organizations and we're just more isolated from each, uh, each other. Uh, Robert Putnam's famous Bowling Alone uh, uh, treatise. There is the demographic story, the demography story or explanation that America, which has long been a white dominated nation, is becoming a much more diverse country, a change that has millions of white Americans in panic. Uh, there is the economic explanation or economic story. 
uh, that high levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people alarmed and alienated and pessimistic. Obviously, all of those are having an effect. But Brooks argues, and, and I would agree with him here, that the deepest issue is, and, and this is something that's not being talked about, and so I'm so glad that he is, uh, is that we're no longer schooled in kindness and consideration. Notice how I phrase that. We're not schooled in it anymore, which means we live in a world where people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. This really is a moral conversation. This is a moral issue. The meanness of America is about morality. Uh, in a healthy society, you've got a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, workplaces that help people uh, form some kind of or, or shape people into responsible citizens. We don't have that today. And certainly those organizations aren't shouldering that responsibility anymore. We just don't have, you know, we talk about spiritual formation. Put this into your discipleship-oriented brain. Uh, we don't have moral formation, uh, which Brooks outlines involves three things. First, helping people learn to, you know, you would think spiritual formation would lend to moral formation, yeah. but really there are often two conversations and we, we don't have moral formation. And you can even have spiritual formation that even leaves off the moral question. Like, like, you know, like you can have all of this, you know, have all of this spirit. It's often reduced to spiritual knowledge, but then we never ask, now, how should we then live? Yeah. So here's what Brooks says about moral formation. It should involve three things. Uh, first, helping people learn to restrain selfishness. Second, teaching basic social and ethical skills, like welcoming a neighbor into a community, or how do you disagree with someone constructively? And then third, helping people find purpose in life. We need to be concerned with teaching and developing virtue, with molding the heart along with the head. Um, we used to do this a lot better than we do now. It wasn't just in schools. There was a huge amount of moral education in schools that now has just been completely taken out because it's so hotly contested and we can't agree on what it ought to be. But it was throughout all of culture. I mean, you had a you had Sunday school you had the YMCA, you had Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. But here's what's important. Uh, and I should say the old YMCA, the old Boy Scouts, the old Girl Scouts that used to really highlight moral, moral formation. And here's what's important. What was taught along those lines was not seen as a matter of personal taste. There was an objective moral order. There, there was transcendent truth. And human beings were seen as creatures who were by nature sinners against that moral order and therefore needed moral formation and moral education. Now, this wasn't, a, I'm not trying to paint, neither, neither was Brooks. Um, the past is some, in some airbrushed, overly nostalgic way. Uh, an emphasis on morality, past or present, doesn't create perfect people. But what can be said is that any and all attempts at moral formation are largely now gone, you know, societally. Any sense of an objective moral order is gone societally. And any sense of transcendent truth is certainly gone societally. We now have this radical individualism. Morality is not something uh, that we find outside of ourselves in, say, a God or a spiritual faith or a revelation. Uh, it's, it's, it's not even found within a community. It's in ourselves. It's our own voice. We are our own moral compass. And along with that is the rejection of any sense of being sinners. If anything, we see ourselves as being naturally good. 
And let me keep building this case. And psychology has replaced morality in terms of how to raise children, which again is something not often being talked about. Psychology is well and good, but its goal and its specialty is mental health, not moral growth. Yet we've turned parenting over almost entirely to the realm of psychology. So you can chart the decline of even the use of morally tinged words and how they're, you don't see them anymore uh, very often. Words like bravery or gratitude or humbleness. Uh, look at college students. Researchers have fast incoming students for decades, you know, about their, in, their, their life, you know, incoming freshmen about their life and their goals and their purpose. And in 1967, uh, about 85% said that they were in college for the purpose to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. By 2015, the number one goal was I want to get rich. Money. All this to say, as Brooks concludes, and I'm trying to, you know, relay him here, you know, fairly. uh, In a culture devoid of moral education, you have a generation growing up in a morally inarticulate, self-referential world. Whatever feels good is moral. We do what makes us feel happy. But here, let me keep going. But that does not lead to a, well, you just do what you do and I'll do what I do kind of world. Or as we used to say, what's well, okay, what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. No, 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 no. That's too utopian. That's not the way it plays out. What happens is we become internally fragile and defensive and insecure. You have no moral compass to guide you, no permanent ideals to which you can swear ultimate allegiance to, um, and it leaves you adrift. The psychiatrist in Holocaust survival Um, Viktor Frankl uh, famously said that he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Those without a why fall apart when storms hit. So take everything, take all this and let's play it out. If you're morally naked and alone, having no skills to know how or even why to be decent or kind to someone, where does that where does that lead to? And then you couple this with how we see ourselves, each one of us as the center of the universe. We've all become narcissists. Social media has helped us become addicted to thinking about ourselves. Yet we're anxious about that and we're insecure and we're very sensitive to rejection. And 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 so all of this leads to triggers of distrust and hostility. And when there's no moral framework, it leads to a breakdown of relationships. You become estranged from other people and sadness and loneliness often turns into bitterness and that bitterness turns into violence and we get callous and we get defensive and we get distrustful and we get hostile. And then you throw in the political situation, which is an interesting kind of combustible element to all of this, because Brooks notes that over the past several years, people have sought to fill the moral vacuum with politics, Mm -hmm. tribalism. Uh, We become hyper politicized. Uh, and we've talked about that here, but in terms, we've t- talked about it, about how ideology has replaced theology, even in the lives of Christians, and their ideology has become their theology. Good and evil isn't just something, isn't about what runs through the human heart, as Solzhenitsyn so famously said. It's about groups. It's us versus them, and it's good guys versus bad guys. Morality is not about personal conduct, but, but where you are on a spectrum where you are on a political spectrum, particularly, or an ideological one. And much of that is fueled by resentment toward the other side. 
for various reasons. And all of that <laughs> is how we got so mean and may very well in 24 get meaner. Mm. I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of that ideology and theology divide, because that was a I mean, that came up in quite a number of conversations this past year. Um, and it, because it's led to such a fragmentation among Christians. And I'm not going to have you rehash all of that right now. Again, we can include in the show notes some of those conversations that we've had on it. But how do you see that ideological, theological severance affecting this new year? Oh, wow. Yeah. There will continue to be two main divides in the coming year. And again, we're trying to keep it confined to 24, but sticking to 24, because I think, I think it'll go beyond. Uh, we'll see deep ideological divides surface through all things political and deep theological divides surface through all things moral, and then those things being confused with each other. Theological divides being, you know, being very ideological in nature and ideological divides being given theological overtones. But sticking to 2024, um, we've talked about politics a fair bit. So let's focus on theology and morality. Mm -hmm. As you know, the history of the Christian church has hammered out many of its creeds on the anvil of healthy theological debate. Uh, in the first five years, for example, it was, it was largely hammering out what does a biblical Christology look like? Um, you know, or Christology meaning the doctrine of the person and work of the whole, of the, of Jesus. In later years, you, you've had robust engagement of the meaning of the inspiration of Scripture, um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and more. But our current cultural climate has made, as we've talked about, morality, just basic morality, a central issue. Namely, when you have a culture rejecting any sense of objective morality and transcendent truth, you're just going to have that impact the church. And specifically, whether the church is going to mirror culture you know, embrace the cultural ethos and morality or lack thereof, or whether it's going to stand apart from culture. Uh, as, as Niebuhr put it, are we going to be a Christ of culture tribe or a Christ, the transformer of culture tribe? Great example is the United Methodist Church, which is all in the news right now. They are currently in the throes of a massive split, largely over the issue of homosexuality and, and gay marriage. On one side are those who want to embrace and affirm homoerotic behavior and same-sex marriage, and on the other, and including ordination of, of, of people. And on the other side, those who want to uphold um, historic Christian orthodoxy. And there's no doubt that, that that's what they're doing, historic Christian orthodoxy and morality. I would argue this is not a theological or biblical debate. It is a cultural one uh, and a massive one. Uh, I mean... You're talking, when I say a cultural debate, because for 2,000 years, the church has spoken with one mind. It's not like this has been, we've been wrestling with this. And so th this is this is something that's being thrust upon the church culturally, not historically, certainly not biblically. Uh, but, but it's massive. Uh, just consider how while in the past there have been schisms in the 20th century among Christian movements. The Presbyterian church comes to mind. But if you studied that, you know that none involved more than about six or seven hundred separating congregations when you know these things happened. United Methodist split is already ten times that size. Not six or seven hundred, but seven thousand plus. It's the largest denominational divide in the United States since the Civil War. And it's been about what? Sexuality. I think we'll see more and more of this. 
including people using theology, you know, more and more, uh, you know, not not arguing over historic Christian doctrine, but I mean, well, I guess that is arguing over historic Christian doctrine, but I mean, or arguing for morality issues. Um, I also think we'll see more and more people uh, using theology in the Bible, as I mentioned, to elevate tertiary issues that are largely cultural or ideological to the level of orthodoxy. And we've certainly seen this in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. Well, let's stick with the church for a minute. And we've talked about what's happening within the churches, but let's talk about what's not happening within churches, which is attendance. Um, You've mentioned before that the number of those who don't identify with any particular religion, they're known as the nuns, um, that group is rapidly growing and that translates into fewer people attending churches. Now, is there any reason to hope that the growth of the nuns might, I'm going I'm to mean to say, like slow down in 2024, or that there's a reason to expect a resurgence of church attendance this year? Well, I, I certainly pray for renewal and revival, and I pray for churches to awaken to what it takes to reach people today, because I think this is largely a self-inflicted wound. But to your, to your point, sadly, I, I doubt it. Uh, there was a survey by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University that found that the percentage of people ages 39 to 57, uh, which is like older millennials and younger boomers largely, uh, who attended a worship or, or uh, uh, Gen X, who attended a worship service during the week, either in person or online, fell to just 28 percent in 2023. That is 41% down from 41%. Um, and the last time it was charted, that is a big drop. That is a huge drop. So what happened? It, it, and I think this is really interesting to do some elimination because there's a lot of anecdotal reasons. People say, well, this is why, this is why, this is why. Well, let's do some elimination. It can't be explained solely by the rise of the nuns. The post-pandemic reality is that many who were churched, who were anything but a nun, simply didn't return to their community of faith. Um, And by the way, that dropped from 40% to 28%. That 40% was charted at the beginning of 2020 Hmm. into 28%. So it, it can't be explained by the nuns alone because people who were churched just left. That's not a nun. That that's a that's a that's a that's a, a, a an ex church person, you know. That's that's not what do they call it. It's not the nuns; it's the duns. <laughs> you know, I'm done. Yeah. And it can't be explained by ideological divides that led people to leave their church during the heated height of all things COVID. I mean, there certainly were a number of people who left their church for another congregation due to positions that their church took, whatever it might've been on vaccines, masking, meeting in person and more, but that would account for migratory patterns, mm-hmm. not a 13 point overall plunge in churches across the board. Okay. So that would be migratory, not just leave. So what did happen? Did they simply get out of habit of attending when many churches were closed to in-person gatherings? Did they enter a stage of life in which it just became more difficult? Uh, Did they become disillusioned uh, with churches in general due to the ideological rancor that was often exhibited? Were they already drifting away from the church beforehand and the the pandemic allowed them to to quiet quit? 
Uh, did their church's stance or lack of one on various social and racial issues push them out the door? Did they become disillusioned by the many high-profile leaders it seems to just be in every new news cycle falling into moral disarray? Uh, were churches simply not challenging enough to arrest their attention, as argued in the recent book by Jim David and Michael Graham called The Great Dechurching? Is it just weak ecclesiology, which I've written a lot about, meaning the doctrine of the church that has always plagued American Christians? The answer, of course, is all of the above. All of the above. Hmm. Which is why I think this isn't going to end. This is the new normal. It doesn't mean there can't be renewal or growing churches or even revival. It's just that we can't write this off as a momentary matter or point the finger to just one thing. Churches... Churches need to wake up, Alexis. And, and to me, this is what I would say most about all of that. Wake up to the new realities that we are in a post-Christian digital world. That's why I wrote my book, Hybrid Church. Uh, I'm not even trying to do a shameless plug. I'm, I'm being more of a, hopefully a prophetic missionary right here. I just want to say to people, there's going to have to be a fresh understanding of our changing mission field and a willingness to explore new methods to reach it. And if we're not willing to do that, how, you know, it's the old line. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be where you've always been. If we, if we don't rethink, if we don't get a fresh assessment of our mission field and a fresh sense of what it's going to take to reach that new mission field, why do we expect anything to be different? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not only that, but if you always do what you've always done, fewer and fewer people are going to do it with you in the future. <laughs> I think that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Exactly. Now I want to pivot to another topic that's been dominating headlines recently, and that's the future of AI, namely the regulation of it. What do you anticipate the conversations about AI, what do you anticipate that they're going to focus on in this coming year? I'm glad you phrased it that way because we've talked to, we've talked some about that here that we'll reference in the show notes. And, mm-hmm. and I think I can give, since I've given some fairly lengthy answers to the other ones, let me make this one succinct because I think that when you look at what AI, what we'll be talking about in the immediate future, um, will be... Um, uh, will be largely revolving around what is real. What is real? Most of the talk around AI, pop culture kind of talk, if you will, I don't think it's what people who are really advanced in AI are most, I mean, they're concerned about it, but there are other things even more concerning. But most of the talk around AI is what it can create in terms of not so much uh, an an intelligence that is hostile, which is what I think a lot of people are afraid of and should be, but that, but things like how to, how it can create a research paper, mm. a legal document, a work of art. Uh, but that also includes things that aren't real, such as deep fake photos or videos or recordings of someone saying something that sounds exactly like them, but it's not them. What this is going to do, this is I think this is what's going to be kind of the popular conversation about AI over the next few months. This will throw the idea of truth and evidence into even more cultural disarray than ever before. And so that's what I would look for there. AI will raise issues of what is true, what is evidentiary, and what is real. Hmm. We've already talked about a lot for this coming year, but what else am I missing? What do you think we're going to be talking about on the podcast this year? Well, as you've heard me say more than a few times, I think that the key tension point for our day when it comes to Christ and culture is, is going to revolve in one form or fashion around the doctrine of humanity. And I've long told my graduate students 
that the doctrine of humanity is by far the most pressing doctrine of our day in regard to culture. It's the area of Christian thought that is most challenged by the world in which we live and the one where we have the least to draw from historically. So I think that all things related to what it means to be human, and that includes gender, artificial intelligence, when life begins, when life ends, all of this flows from the doctrine of humanity. This is just going to be huge. But having said that, I want to chase something else related to several of our questions today. And, and it's the overarching cultural chaos that exists and that I see increasing due to a crisis of truth. I, I just see this playing out in almost everything we've already talked about today as we forecast things, politics and divisions. I mean, just everything. And I think it's worth pinpointing exactly what is going on. And, and I think this is very important for Christians to understand. The real nature of our cultural crisis is a crisis of authority. Let's state the obvious. There's a lack of trust in our world, which leads to a crisis of authority. And while you can trace that crisis back, some to 9-11, some to the 2008 financial meltdown, some to the, how they feel COVID was handled, the crisis of authority rests in the rejection long before that, of transcendent truth and moral authority. What I've, when, what I've called the second fall, I wrote about this in Serious Times and some other books of mine, the second fall. The first fall led to God's expulsion of human beings from the Garden of Eden. The second fall was when we returned that favor. In, in our world, people lead their lives without any sense of needing to look to a higher power, to something outside of themselves. Uh, leaders of science and commerce and education and politics, regardless of their personal convictions, have ceased operating with any reference to a transcendent truth, much less a God, in their cultural uh, actions. This is a new and a profound break with the history of Western thought and culture. Even among those times and places that might be termed pagan, true secularity in this sense has never been known in the history of the world. Because whether it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or the gods of Greece, or the gods of Rome, there were gods. There were gods, something outside of themselves that they looked to. It would have been alien to anyone's thinking to begin and end with themselves alone in terms of truth and morality. No more. The second fall changed all of that and now shapes the world in which we live. Now, hang with me here. No one saw this for a while, except a few cultural pundits who had Christian sensibilities, I would argue, but still a few cultural pundits. Society as a whole, and even Christians, really didn't see the depth of this fall because there was still a sense of trust operating in culture. There was a sense of authority that was still operating in culture, a sense of morality that was still pervading things, but it was largely institutional in nature. Um, it wasn't really deeply spiritual coming from within where people like this was their moorings. It was more like it was it was like in the cultural DNA. It was it was a cultural ethos. It, you know, you, you had trust in institutions and government and schools and colleges and police force and such. It was trust and authority in cultural institutions that let cultural move forward with a seeming lack of chaos even after the second fall, the sense of a lack of transcendent truth and objective morality. But then what has happened recently, this breakdown of trust in institutions, 
the cultural glue that was masking all of this and letting society go on in a way that wasn't in anarchy. Uh, but then distrust of institutions set in, followed by social media and misinformation and disinformation. And those are two different things. Misinformation is false information that people sincerely believe and spread. Disinformation is deliberate deception. Both are just coursing through the veins of our culture. And together, they're driving the chaos of authority and morality. And when you have leaders casting even more efforts to have distrust in institutions on the left and the right, uh, it just adds to the division. It adds to the meanness. It adds to the fear. It adds to the, the chaos mm -hmm. that comes where the unthinkable happens. The unthinkable. I mean, and how many things culturally, person against person, brother against brother, what have, how much have we seen even in the last five years that we would have said would have been unthinkable. Yeah. Which is why I think there will be more cultural chaos to come because now we are confronted and dealing with not only the second fall, but a loss of the institutional and societal glue of trust that used to hold us together in terms of trust and morality. I mean, even the final arbiter of that, the Supreme court now has been gutted of any, whether you agree with it or not, I mean, people just feel like it's as immoral and as untrustworthy and as anything else. And that was, you know, our last bastion, if you would, culturally, institutionally mm -hmm. for these sort of things. But we now have nothing. We really have nothing. Uh, and I know this is all very dire. <laughs> this is very depressing. But as I've written, we live in serious times. And... Uh, you know, which means, but here's here's what I feel. It just means that we as Christ followers must take seriously our call mm -hmm. to be salt and light in this deeply fallen world. I, I just want to, I, I wish I could take Christians and say, I, I know you're engaged in a lot of ideological things that have got you very exercised, but you're missing, you're missing the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. You don't see the real fight. You don't see the real darkness. And, and we have just got to get engaged in that and, 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 realize the real the real battle lines but sadly too often we are mirroring culture even as christians in terms of our thinking and sadly in terms of our conduct well here's to 2024 <laughs> no no but in all seriousness as you were talking i was thinking yeah this is not our most optimistic um podcast um but at the same time i would say I think that's why you need to keep listening, especially if this is your first time joining us, because what I love so much about what we do is norm normally we, we do talk about a particular issue, but then we do talk about where the church can intersect that issue, where, to your point, where we can be salt and light and where we can, you know, be... Yeah, the beacon of hope where there is where, where there seemingly is none, because we can. I mean, that is our call. And as you said, if we're going to take that seriously, we need to not only have the passion, but we need to we need to have the wisdom and the know-how in terms of how exactly do we do that in a winsome way. So that's what we try to do on every, on every episode. So I hope that you will join us again next week and in the future as we do just that. So hopefully this has been helpful. Jim, thank you so much for all of your research on this. Um, I 
I, I hope none of the things that you said come true. <laughs> and yet I think you are um, spot on with your predictions. So we'll be here ready to talk about those things. And as I mentioned, talk about how we can be hope um, in the midst of that. So thank you. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you'll tune in again next week.